0: Hello and welcome. We're glad that you're interested in spiritual things, and we're really glad that you've joined us today. My name is Ethan. I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. And today, we're going to begin considering the picture that we get of Jesus from the Gospel of John and certain stories that are told in the Gospel of John. And we begin with the first Passover, as revealed beginning in John chapter 2, in verse 13. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus So it is with everyone was born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe it if I tell you heavenly things? But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So this is the section that is associated with the Passover, this first Passover when Jesus is in Jerusalem. In the beginning of the Gospel, from John 1, 1 1-18, we're introduced to Jesus as the Word made flesh, that he is God, active in creation, the light of the world that John the Baptist had his role, and that grace and truth came in Jesus. And then in the rest of the chapter, through verse 51, we see the preparation for ministry. We see that who John the Baptist uh, claims to be, and what he does not claim to be. That he, in fact, uh, baptized Jesus, and recalls Jesus' baptism. He points out who Jesus is to his disciples, Andrew and, S- and, Andrew and Simon go and become the uh, disciples of Jesus. And Simon is named Peter. And Philip and Nathanael are called as well. As chapter 2 begins, we see Jesus' first miracle in Cana of Galilee of turning the water into wine. So at this point, Jesus, uh, John excuse me, has introduced Jesus and his disciples. And he's beginning to make his power known. So we've already seen the first sign. But now we really get a glimpse into the first actions and teachings of Jesus. And it happens here at the first Passover of three that are mentioned during Jesus' ministry. And the narrative begins with the cleansing of the temple. That Jesus in in John goes right into Jerusalem. And he makes a whip of cords. He casts out those selling uh, animals or changing money. And he says that they should not make his father's house a house of merchandise. And not unsurprisingly, the, the, the Jews want to know what, what, why he's doing these things and what sign he does to show his authority for doing these things. Meanwhile, his disciples remember uh, Psalm 69.9, "That zeal for your house will consume me. And of course, Psalm 69 will have many references to the life and death of Jesus and the identity of who Jesus is and the story of God. And so Jesus tells them when they ask what sign he does, this is a very important moment when he, when he establishes, what why, why can you come in here and do this ritual action that indicates uh, displeasure with the temple system? And he says, destroy this temple and I'll build, raise it in three days. And, of course, they are incredulous. It's the 47th year building of this temple. And uh, based upon Josephus' testimony in the antiquities of the Jews, Book 15, Chapter 11 that the temple was begun in Herod's 18th year, and from what we know of other accounts, that's around 21 or 20 B.C., so therefore this is happening somewhere around 26 or 27 of the current era. And so Jesus is, is, is just, saying, well, it destroys the temple in three days, they think he means the actual physical temple. It was this massive thing that's taken them 46 years to build. Actually, it didn't take that long to build, they just been trying to finish it over and over again. Uh, but John indicates he's not speaking about the building; he's talking about the temple of his body. And this would be some of the disciples would remember after the resurrection and believed in the word that Jesus spoke in the Scripture. And this is a very important event in, in, in Jesus' ministry. Then John indicates a lot of people are believing in Jesus; they're they're willing to believe, they want to believe. But he doesn't entrust himself to them. He doesn't say, "Okay, well, now that you believe, I'm going, you know, do with me as you will." Because, well, he knew what's in man, and uh, he didn't need anybody to tell him about that. In verses twenty-two, twenty-three through twenty-five. Now, meanwhile, we start a new chapter, chapter three. But even though it's a new chapter, it doesn't mean that we've changed uh, times or or, or events or anything of the sort. We're still here in Jerusalem. Nicodemus, we're told, is a man who is a Pharisee. He's a ruler of the Jews. And he's coming to Jesus by night in Jerusalem during this Passover observance. He comes by night because he can't come by day because of the, the way it looks. And it would be very difficult for his position to do so. So he comes at night uh, to see Jesus. And, and he makes this grand confession. Uh, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So, you would think that Jesus shows no sign of even recognizing this, but the whole conversation actually is an indication he does recognize it. Uh, So, okay, this, this man has come here. He should already... Know a few things. He's a teacher in Israel, so he's going to provide this instruction and kind of see where it goes. And so it just says, and it starts out with this idea that unless one is born again, uh, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And, And throughout this whole conversation, we see this parallelism going on where there's just much confusion. Nicodemus, throughout, is understanding Jesus in terms of physical. Matters So he's wanting to know, can you enter your mother's womb a second time? He's not picking up any spiritual dimension to this. And Jesus is also using this kind of vagary here, the Greek anothen. Uh, born again, they also mean from above. So born from above or born again. And certainly they can mistake mistaken this very much born again in a very literal, concrete sense. But very much Jesus does mean both. It's both from above and again. And so he again clarifies that if you're not born... If you're not, unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you can enter in the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and born of spirit is spirit. And you shouldn't marvel about this. That as the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, thus it is with the, those who are born of the Spirit. They are, are moved by the direction of the Spirit. Of course, there's that vagary that in, in Greek, not strong. Numa is spirit, can mean breath. But in Hebrew, ruach can mean wind, breath, or spirit. So wind, soul, were words that are very similar to each other. And since this conversation was likely in Aramaic, uh, that association would certainly have been there. And Nicodemus doesn't get it. How can these things be? just so, You're teaching teacher in Israel, and you can't start with some of these basic things. I mean, what's going on here? And he's telling earthly things. If you don't believe the earthly things, then how can you believe the heavenly things? And this leads him to this this extended discussion that the only way you can know of heavenly things is from the one who's come from heaven, the Son of Man, uh, the one who's going to return, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, a story in Numbers uh, chapter 21, so here Jesus, uh, as Moses lifted up the Hustan, the bronze serpent, uh cause all those who looked upon it to be healed from their uh, poisonous bites. So also now Jesus will be raised and lifted up. Um, And, of course, we see in the lifting up the cross, but also should see the resurrection and the ascension in the lifting up that happens there to Jesus. And that those who believe in him will have eternal life. Of course, in John 3.16, this is because God loved his son. He loved the world, excuse me, that he sent his monogony's son, his his only begotten or unique son that anyone who believes on him should not perish to have eternal life but he goes on that the son was sent not to condemn the world but to save the world and he he makes these contrasts that those who believe are not condemned but whoever does not believe is already condemned because they have not believed in in Jesus and that the judgment that is involved here is that the light has come to the world people have loved the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil for those who do wicked things hate the light and don't come to the light lest their works are exposed but whoever does what is true comes to the light that they can be seen that what they have done has been done in God after this we're told Jesus goes into the Gean countryside was baptizing there There there's some disputes that go on with John's disciples and from there he will eventually go and head to Samaria and back to Galilee and so this is definitely the end of this this first Passover situation, but we definitely see some in the establishment of many of the main principles of his work in preaching that he will stand against the authorities and structures contrary to God's purposes but is accomplishing salvation for those who come to the light and to seek the truth of God. There's a lot of great stuff here and the first thing we look at here is Jesus is the temple here in John chapter 2 13 through twenty-two. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have a similar scene where Jesus cleans out the temple, but they all put it at the final week in Jerusalem, uh, just before he dies, in, in Matthew 21, Mark 11, and Luke 19, whereas John will speak of it as the first thing that he does in Jerusalem at the beginning of his ministry. Uh, for our purposes, we're not going to try to figure out the harmonization and all that, because we're trying to understand Jesus and John. So what is it about this event that John feels the need to show it happening here at the very beginning? Uh, the, first, you know, the second time we've even had G- Jesus in the area of Judea, a uh, real first association with Jerusalem, it's, it's entering the temple and, and doing this event. And it's because, in, really, this temple conflict, so to speak, is central to who Jesus is and what he's doing. Uh, Israel, at the time, is putting its hope in this temple. Uh, They're rebuilding after 46 years. And of course, it's not just the building but all that it stands for. This is where Yahweh dwells. Yahweh is our God. Yahweh will protect us. Yahweh will not allow the Gentiles to yet again pervert uh, and desecrate his holy house, his habitation. And the Jews will prove quite willing to die for it and sacrifice everything for it. Uh, The number of Jews who threw themselves at the feet of the Greeks or the Romans, to keep them from committing sacrilege were numerous, and legendary for their devotion and zeal for their God and for their temple. But the point here that Jesus is, a temple cannot save uh, that temple in particular because Jesus, the temple, uh, who has will be torn down, but will be rebuilt in three days, certainly can. And so this is a very important moment and it's always the temple is entering the temple. And uh, so this John two nineteen, the idea that destroy his temple in three days, I will raise it up, uh, is setting the tone for the whole rest of the book, and really for uh, theology, Christology, and even Ecclesiology, understanding God, Jesus, and the Church, because the temple, well, of course, what makes the temple the temple? The temple is the temple because God's presence dwells there. The whole idea is, that why do we believe that this temple is important if you're in Israelite? Well, it's because Yahweh's made his name to dwell there. Yahweh's presence is there. So the whole idea is that it's, it's where God is. And of course, the whole point in John's Gospel is the Word is God. So Jesus is the Word. The Word is made flesh and dwells among us. God is there. So the temple is now Jesus' body. And so it's getting away from Jerusalem and the Aaronic Priesthood. The physical, observa- the physical observances is now being placed upon Jesus' body, killed for sin, but raised again to die no more. The eternal temple, which brick and mortar could never be. And that's why in John 4, when Jesus will talk about the true worshippers, those who truly prostrate before God, do so in spirit and in truth, because you don't go to Gerizim or Zion or any other place to do that, because Jesus is the, the temple in many ways. So Jesus is declared the Son of God in the resurrection. He died having never to never die again. He's the anchor in the of the hope of the believer of his own resurrection, Romans one, six and first Corinthians fifteen. And so that's why it makes sense that the temple is his body, because it's quite literally killed and raised. And that, as the Hebrew author will make clear, that he is made high priest in the order of Melchizedek. But when that temple is given power and authority in his ascension, in Hebrews 7 through 9, the idea that the temple again enters a temple. As here in John 2, the temple enters a temple physically. The physical body enters a physical temple. So the physical body of Jesus in the resurrection enters the heavenly temple of sorts, as describes in, in Hebrews chapter 9. And it continues in the body of believers who are Christ in the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're called in 1 Corinthians 3 collectively and 1 Corinthians 6 individually. Uh, the idea that we are that the temple, the Holy Spirit dwells in us, and therefore we are the temple uh, in, in that sense. And, of course, the idea that we are Christ's body, that we are in Christ, and the Holy Spirit dwells in us, uh, all of all of these images, illustrations are working together for profound spiritual truth. So and really we, we we shouldn't miss this, that here Jesus is at the very near beginning of his ministry, but he's already prophesying his death and resurrection, the destruction of the temple and the raising again. Uh, and it's going to serve as this continual contrast because forty years after his temple is destroyed, the physical temple will be destroyed. But it has not been rebuilt. Jesus is rebuilt in the resurrection. And that's why he is Lord, and that's why we need to serve him, and that's why this becomes the anchor of the rest of the whole gospel. And that's why John brings it forward, because it's very important to who Jesus is and what he is doing. He is the Word made flesh, and therefore his body is a temple. And that's going to have a lot of consequence implications for how you understand the gospel of John. The next major section we have is, is Jesus with Nicodemus, and this seems to be John 3, 1-21, through this whole section, 2-21, through 21, whole section seems to involve this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. And, and there are f- very few places in Scripture where passages are ripped out and proof-texted, like in Jesus' discourse with Nicodemus. Uh, John 3, 5, being born of the Lord and the Spirit, you have to be born again. The whole idea of being a born-again believer comes from John 3. Uh, John 3, 16, obviously has been splattered everywhere as a condensation of the gospel message. And we could spend all kinds of time talking about the various denominational doctrines and difficulties that will be discussed in the context of John 3, 2-21, in terms of belief and baptism and things of that nature. Uh, But we're trying to understand Jesus and John, and how Jesus is being portrayed in John. And in order to do that, uh, we have to understand that John's not presenting this discourse uh, to be treated this way and ripped to pieces in truth texts. In fact, uh, it's a conversation. It's a, it's a discourse, and, and from it, in its wholeness, in the whole thing, from verse 3 through verse 21, we get the idea of who Jesus is, what he's about, and how he's to be understood. And in fact, what we're doing is we're seeing, how does Jesus present what he's about to a sympathetic Jewish leader. This is actually, when you think about it, one of the few times this happens. In Luke, I think Luke 6, he, he visits Simon the Pharisee's house and has a conversation with Simon the Pharisee about a sinner woman. Uh, that, that doesn't seem to be as polemical uh, as some of the other times he's talking to the Pharisees. Normally, when he's talking to the Pharisees, he's in a polemical stance, he's, he's arguing with opponents. Here, here's what you hear from Jesus when he's talking to somebody who's got the wherewithal and some knowledge and is an instructor in Israel, who's sympathetic to him. What does he tell him? What, what, where does he start? Well, he starts where you have to start—that you have to be born again or born from above to have spiritual life and spiritual understanding to understand all these things in verses three through twelve. And and yes, Jesus is talking about the spiritual life that comes when you believe, confess, repent. And you are baptized, and and yes, we are right, and must defend the need for water baptism. That's what baptism in the water and the spirit. That water there is water baptism. Uh, you, you can't not have that concept. It's not the early birth and that birth and physical birth. I think no, it's it's talking about regeneration that happens in water baptism, but. Unfortunately, a lot of times we walk away thinking that's all a baptism, but baptism is part of the process, it's not the purpose. The focus for Jesus is not how you are born again. It's that you are born again. And we need to make sure to maintain that emphasis. This is vividly illustrated earlier with, with when he was taught with the Jews in the temple, and of course, even with Nicodemus, that... You have to have spiritual rebirth and especially spiritual understanding if you're going to make sense of who Jesus is and what he's about. And throughout the Gospel of John, really throughout Jesus' ministry, that's the main point. These things are spiritually discerned. This makes no sense on the physical plane. This makes no sense according to the way the Jews are naturally going to think and make sense of the prophecies. It just isn't. It won't. And Jesus isn't trying to say it would or that it even should. That's why Nicodemus he starts with this idea that you have to be born again and born from above. Because what people have done who have not been born again or born from above will just literalize, distort, make make what Jesus says into caricatures when he's trying to convey spiritually in a figure or in a way that you have to give the benefit of the doubt based upon a spiritual understanding. It's only when you come to the recognition that Je- you you you're willing to put your trust in Jesus to get this understanding of how things work. And by the way, it's this that doesn't mean that that Jesus is going to provide some kind of potion or magic wand or, or make you think one day in a spiritual way. No, what the whole point is that to get born from above means to 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 be willing to submit yourself to the rule of God in Christ. And, and therefore, to look at th- be willing to look at things through that spiritual lens, to 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 try on the the view of Jesus that that comes through Jesus, the mind of Christ, so to speak, in First Corinthians chapter two, which we have in its revealed in Scripture. And so, it's not like it has to be some kind of magic trick. We have all that we need, me, to come to that understanding. Um, that's, but Jesus is trying to here explain that here. Once you've got that though, once you've got that ability to understand be born again you can then understand uh, that it's coming through the one who descended and will ascend again and that he will ascend and, and be able to give himself for the world to save the world in John 3.13-17 uh, He's speaking of his death in 3.14-16 He absolutely is uh, that he will be lifted up and he, that God told the world that he gave his only Son. But it's always a lot of the resurrection and ascension, because, as Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15, if, if Jesus is not raised, we're still in our sins. And it's in the ascension he has made the Son of Man, that, that the, the Son of Man will, as he says in verse 14, uh, none has ascended to heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. The Son of Man has to ascend again. He's got to go back up. Uh, that, that's part and parcel of the whole process. Jesus is raised up on the cross like Moses raised up Nehushtan. He's also raised up in the resurrection and the ascension. And Jesus is the monogamies the only begotten, unique from Psalm 2. And that idea of Jesus being the, 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 the one declared the Son of God Romans one force in the resurrection, that's how Paul understands how Jesus is the only begotten. He's the only begotten from the dead. He's made the Son of God in the resurrection. Not that Paul would deny that he was the son of God before not the son of God before the resurrection, or not divine before the resurrection. But that this is how this psalm is fulfilled. Eternal life is rooted in the resurrection, because those who are raised have died to death in Romans six, one through eleven, and that he remains that. He died no longer to die. He died to death once, so he wouldn't have to keep dying. And that's the expression of God's love—that He decided to save the world through Jesus' Son. And this leads naturally that Jesus is not there, therefore, to judge, but to save. And a lot of times we get this all messed up today because so many people are about uh, condemnation and judgment in, in the light of some. And so, as he's react, he would say, "Well, you know, well, this Jesus is saying here that you know it's all about love, and, and that He's not here to, to to judge anybody." Actually, the English standard has a well that it's, He's not here to condemn people. Uh, Jesus was stood up to the religious authorities. Jesus would stand against sin. He's not a fan of unrepentant sin. But the very important point is that we've missed, because we take redemption and salvation for granted, is that Jesus isn't here like a Pharisee or somebody else pointing out everybody else's problems, laughing at them and going back to heaven, and watching them die and burn in hell. That's not why Jesus was sent. Jesus was not sent uh, to condemn. He was there to save God wants to save the world through Jesus' son. If God wanted to condemn the world, he would have done nothing. He would not have sent his son. He would not have uh, forced his son to suffer this experience or to allow his son to suffer the experience, however, uh, that went down theologically. Excuse me. That it wouldn't have been necessary if he just wanted everybody to be sent to hell. No, the fact that he sent Jesus, that Jesus was willing to go, that Jesus felt compelled to do this, was because of the love God had that people would not have to be condemned. That, in fact, people could be saved. And and therefore, you've got this response. Either you come to the light or you stay in darkness. If you come to the light, then you're no longer condemned. But if you stay in the darkness, you're condemned because you've rejected the light. And, of course, this idea of Light and darker, classically John. We see this in John one, First John one, First John three, and many other places. Um, this is not a contradiction. Um, that well, you know, you're not the believers are no longer no longer judged in some versions. Some versions say condemned. Uh, if it's, you think it's in terms of condemned, then certainly there's no contradiction. But even uh, with the idea of judged, it's n- no more of a contradiction than it would be of. Uh, Acts 17 or Revelation 20, the idea that the unbeliever is already judged because they've rejected the Son of God, that there's still going to be that day where we stand before the judgment seat of God, but as you see throughout Scripture, there's kind of this now, not yet of judgment, where uh, the redeemed are in heaven in Philippians 1 and Revelation 6, 7, uh, the condemned are suffering some kind of torture in, in Luke 16 in that picture, and in, uh, are in waiting the resurrection of condemnation. So there is a default concept that there's some level of judgment already, but of course, waiting the final judgment of God. And so what Jesus is really doing here is showing what he's doing in his ministry and the preaching of the gospel and his resurrection, really to this day. Uh, That some are drawn to the truth of God in Christ, and they'll confess their sins. They're going to try to live in accordance with what God's revealed in the New Testament, and will have no problem being accountable to God or his people. Those who want to stay in the darkness and have their work exposed, because they're going to be ashamed of them and be reproved by them, just stay away. Like we see in Ephesians 5, 6-16. And so we see here, at the very beginning, the paradigm of what Jesus is going to do in his ministry. His body, which is a temple, is going to be killed but raised from the dead. And all who will come to his light will understand these things and be saved. But those who wish to remain in darkness will not understand and they'll be condemned. And so we see that how Jesus' ministry is portrayed as beginning in John. We see the, the miracle in Cana, but then, of course, in the Passover of Jesus' ministry, we really see how the tone is going to be set. The recognition that the temple in Jerusalem is trappings and its system cannot save. That being part of the temple of the Holy Spirit as Jesus' body is what's going to save. That you need to be spiritually born to understand uh, Jesus' salvation and hope in the resurrection. And that we need to come to the light of Christ and repent of the darkness. Which leads to the question, are you trusting in Jesus? Are you part of his body and sharing the hope of his resurrection? Have you been reborn of the water and the spirit? Understand what God has done in Christ and have come to the light? Or are you in darkness and are afraid of being exposed? To know for certain that the, those who remain in darkness will be cut off and their dark deeds will be exposed. Instead to repent and come to the light of God in Christ is the very appeal that Jesus is making here in John 2 and 3. So... And again, very glad that you've joined us, and if you need to talk more about these things, you're in a condition where you need to obey the gospel and to follow Jesus, we, we can certainly see what we can do to help with that. Maybe you just want to talk more about what Jesus said, or you've got some questions or difficulties. Maybe you just uh, have a prayer request. You just need to talk. If there's any way I can be of service, please let me know. You can contact me at my website, DeVerboVitae.com. That's www.DeVerboVitae.com. And if you're interested in more about the Venice Church of Christ, you can find out more about us online at VeniceChurchofChrist.org. We're also on social media, on Facebook, Google+, Instagram, Meetup, Twitter, YouTube, at Venice Church of Venice Church of Christ. We again thank you. Have a great day.